Promise No Promises The Tale and the Tongue Episode 11 Hi, how are you? The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tale and the Tongue this series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Hi, how are you? Is the 11th episode that arises from a conversation with Era Chiena, an enthusiastic storyteller Era is currently an active member of the social center Thermokis in Prishina. She was also part of the team of the European Nomadic Biennale Manifesta 14, which this year took place between July and October 2022 in the capital of Kosovo. The two main focuses of Manifesta 14, public space and storytelling, joined our conversation in an organic way. Telling personal stories is also a way of making collective memory turning public spaces into intimate places where lives and times mingle. Era, Hiena and I met during the first week of Manifesta 14. Luz Broto had an intuition and put us in contact on the occasion of her art project Swap Keys. We both agreed that the impossible swapping of the keys of our respective houses in Prishina and Berlin could be the excuse for something else, for an exchange still to be defined. I left Prishina without us meeting again, but remembering that first lively conversation with Era. The possibility of doing a podcast together started there, after we met at the Brick Factory, one of the many venues of Manifesto 14. It was Era who made the proposal asking me with excitement to interview her and telling me that she could talk about anything I wanted to ask. I remember feeling the need to explain that I was not doing interviews but holding conversations. In interviews, questions are asked and answered, and one voice raises another. In conversations, stories are shared and voices meet. My wish joined Era's wish, although it would take several weeks for my official invitation to arrive. I have always needed to let wishes rest for a while until they become stable decisions.
The words, hi, how are you, came up a few times during our conversation. At the beginning of our meeting, with the title of an album by Daniel Johnston, and later connecting to basic forms of hospitality and mutual care. This seemingly simple question is not always easy to answer. When asked out of real interest, it is an invitation for intimacy. In some texts I read about Kosovo and Prishina, the notion of hospitality was a constant. It was also a constant in my experience of the city and in my daily contact with local people. As I also commented to Era, the fact that there are cultures where it's so complicated and expensive to make a copy of house keys says a lot about their forms of hospitality and intimacy. Here Era would again refer to an ancient book written in Albanian where hospitality already appears as a set of rules and principles. One of them say that hospitality is practiced not only with friends, but also with strangers and even enemies. Far from written or spoken rules, conversations and shared stories are a place where hospitality can also happen. This conversation with Era Hiena took place at the end of October. Finally connecting our homes in Prishina and Berlin through the screen, we started talking about the difficulty of owning your own place when you're very young. Half of Kosovo's population is under 30 years of age. Added to this are the severe limitations imposed by the EU on Kosovars, who need a visa to travel to other states and cannot participate in the supposed European freedom of movement. This reconnects with imbalances in hospitality, when it happens on the one side but not on the other. Our conversation, however, led us in other directions, to private spaces with public uses, to those places in Prishina with which ERA has emotional connections, to Tamukis and its influence on other projects and social structures, to received stories and stories to be told, to taking care of street dogs, to relationships in digital times, to children's wishes and expectations, to the many lives that appear in one's own. For the question, how are you, is both personal and collective. However different the answers may be, they tend to include how other people are doing and what the conditions are in many social realities. Dramatically, we make a lot of mistakes in English, but I think it's fine. The thing that you see the native language coming through even in some different small pronunciations and everything. Most young people, even myself, we speak Albanian and then we go to English and then we go to Albanian again and then we have some words which are Albanian but English but also Albanian. It's so confusing to explain. We just albanize or Englishnize the word. I think the first interaction that we've had was when Ilios had that discussion 
Do you remember in the Center for Narrative Practice, and we were a lot of people, a lot of locals, and we were all talking about this concept of a house, and this concept of how important it is to have your own space after going through a very difficult conflict, so to say. We don't really have a lot of issues with homelessness or this or that, but we just have a lot of issues that the young population... So how do I explain this without going like... Pristina is very centralized. Our main capital is very, very, very centralized. Everything happens here. You get big buildings, you get cultural events, you get, I don't know, every main office is in Pristina or in the suburbs of Pristina and everything is happening here. So also a lot of students come from different cities here to study and then they have to find a way to also work, which most people get paid very less and they have to find a way to study, and they have to find accommodation. Usually they have dormitories, but the dormitories, they always say, are in horrible shape. I don't know what the situation is now, but I'm really guessing that they're not that good now either. And with the housing thing is that most people really, they just live with their parents, or the people who live alone, they always have this struggle to actually keep maintaining themselves because really a lot of people don't really get paid that much. It's different now that Manifesto has been here for a few months and people have gotten paid better, but it's still not enough because even yesterday I was talking to some of my colleagues and I was like, man, what am I going to do when Manifesto leaves, you know? troublesome for a lot of people but I've been very lucky because my mom's aunts actually they were pretty smart one of them bought us a house not a house an apartment in the center also and in this apartment that I'm in right now we've had it in generations and I'm pretty lucky for that because actually from the first of November and onwards I'm gonna move out and I'm not going to have to pay, like, a lot of rent. I'm only going to give my parents, like, 150 euros or something because they're also very understanding of it. But I remember we were looking with my boyfriend for apartments that we could rent, and all of the cheaper ones, they were very bad <laughs> to live in, and all of the more expensive ones, they were very nice, very good, but... I'm getting a stable wage, a stable pay right now, but what am I going to do after October? Like, what's going to happen? Can I afford to get a 300 euro apartment a month and also pay for the bills and also pay for this and for that and just live comfortably? So I noticed that, no. But then luck came. And now I can live better, even though it might be a bit uh, problematic, a bit confusing and a bit stressful, but I think that's nice because it's a part of growing up. From my personal point of view, I've gotten in this apartment that we are in, that I am in right now, and you virtually kind of, you see just the whiteness, I've had this issue that most I never got to have my personal space. I'm also connecting this somehow in my brain with the swap keys, but I will explain as we go on. I never really got to have my personal space because we were always at least three, four people living in an apartment. And beforehand, I was living in another neighborhood with my parents until I was like six. 
I never slept alone because I was always scared of sleeping alone and I was always very scared of the dark, even as a tiny kid. And I was always sleeping with my mom in the living room because the apartment was very big, but we only had two rooms which you could sleep in. So we were all sleeping in the living room with those couches. I don't know how to say it in English. Like you just tick tick, then you have a big bed. I moved in here with my aunt, with my mother's aunt. And also here, I never really slept alone. I always slept with my aunt because I was again scared. And then it became kind of this pathological thing that I never really had any personal space and whatever I was doing. My close family members, they would always come to me and they'd be like, Hey, Era, what are you doing? Hey, Era, what are you doing? Hey, what is this? What is that? And they sometimes would critique me as a kid and I wouldn't really understand it. And then whatever was happening, if I was crying, if I was laughing, it was always this thing of, Hey, Era, what's up? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And I never really had the space to just be in that space without anyone not questioning, but without anyone, we have this saying in Albanian, which sounds very rude, but it just also makes sense, which means to put your nose in, because I forgot to explain, you know, like, it's just... Then we moved to another apartment, which was very small, and I finally got my own room, but it was tiny. But it was also pretty nice, because at least at night, I could cry, I could laugh, I could watch anything because I also had a computer there and it was very nice. But the downside of that was that my dad was very into video games at the time and he still actually is. So what he would do is that he would stay in my room and play until like 11 p.m. whenever he would come back from work. Like I was always dealing with people and with people and with people and with people. And then we moved in here again. And then I had to live with my brother in one room. So we had two bunk beds and I would sleep in the top and my brother would sleep in the bottom. So also here you would not really get any sense of privacy. So how I'm connecting this is because, you know, we think of the house sometimes as this place where there is, let's call it a community, in the context that there are a lot of people. But we always tend to forget that Sometimes we idealize these sort of notions. It's a community, it's people, we love them, and this and that, and you really love them, but at the same time, sometimes you really just need an hour of no one speaking to you, or you snap. I snap a lot of time. I just lose it completely. the swap keys project I see this correlation is that really our houses are very very important to us and I remember someone was talking about how important our houses are and they're important to us because it's this thing that you kind of have the control of deciding who you want to go into your house deciding who you want to come into your life in a way and who you want to pay your respects to so to say and I think it's very beautiful And also with the Swap Keys project, in the beginning, I was skeptical about it because I was thinking of all of these things of we're not used to letting people in that easily, even though they say, oh my God, Albanians, they're so hospitable, da-da-da-da-da-da. You're just not used to letting people in like randomly without knowing them. I was skeptical because of that and also other things we've discussed. I, I don't remember properly, but I know there was also this issue of the 
visa and everything, and I guess we will also talk about that because it's pretty interesting. But in this context, we weren't used to it, and it was very difficult for a lot of people in the beginning to understand that, hey, this is a symbolic thing. You don't really have to go into that person's house. It's just the next level if you want to do it. I remember seeing Lios that night at the Brick Factor, and she was like, oh, I know so you should meet her. And I was like, okay. And then we met, and we were like, I can't really give you my parents' house's keys. And you're like, yeah, in Germany, this and that. Also, one of the beauties of the project is the fact that it can just be a starting point. I remember also in the discussion, someone asked, is it a starting point, a middle point, or an ending point, or something like this? What is the point? And I think it's just a starting point of talking and exchanging and thinking about all of these issues that you have. For example, someone so far away and someone who is here, which is also far away from the other person. There was this thing that I wasn't really going out until my first year of university. There were a lot of factors to it, but I still think one of the main ones was the fact that my parents were very overprotective and they were very scared of what I might find, so to say, when I go out. After the war and during the war, it was very tough for people because a lot of things were popping up, a lot of dangerous things so to say and I'm not speaking about just violence or this and that but also things that could really harm a person's psyche and I also get it why they were like that. I wasn't really going out until first year in university which was in 2018-19. My social interactions were very weird. I had very weird friendships up until the time because I didn't have the experience of properly socializing with people. I was very awkward and very anxious and very, very insecure. I think I was such a bad person, but I never did it on purpose. I just didn't know how to interact with people, you know. Up until then, most of my interactions would have been in different courses that I'd go to, at school, and I was a teacher's pet in um, primary school. It was so weird. I was always spoiled as a child and then everything just crashed down and it was so confusing for me about how the world works. And then I went to university. I started to see that you're not really special, you know? <laughs> you're not that special. People listen to the things that you listen to. And that was such an eye-opener for me because then I just noticed that there are so many people around you that you can meet and so many places that you could go to. And it took me a while to actually socialize properly. But up until that point, the internet was always my main socializing point. In the context that I also played a lot of video games, I was always like also in that Tumblr phase that everyone was into way back. And it was so weird. Like Tumblr is so fucked up, honestly. <laughs> it's really, you would see the weirdest things. 
like I would make a lot of internet friends and I had a lot of internet friends through video games and I was also very addicted to video games for a while. I, this is one of the parts in my life that I'm not very proud of but I think it's very funny to talk about it because I was playing League of Legends like all the time and I wasn't even that good. I was just playing and playing and playing and I made a lot of friends and most of them were from different villages of Kosovo and then at one point in time I literally had an internet boyfriend from Croatia and it was so insane now that I think about it but then I started actually going out and when I started going out in the beginning it was slower and slower and slower but what's interesting about Pristina is that those places that are public and private are usually bars or cafes we have a lot of them you see different demographics going to different bars and you start to pick your crowd subconsciously that way. There's this tiny, tiny place called Pietore in the Rakia Street in Coafet Rakis. And for me in the past few years, it's been like this place that I've cried in, that I've, I've literally like laughed and drank a lot and vomited and just hung out or studied or finished some work in that space all the time and it was so interesting for me to actually stop and think about it about how this is really a space that is privately owned but it's also kind of public because you also walk and at night you can also sit in there because they leave the chairs outside and you can sit in there and you're still in that space and it gives you that energy of the space and everything how when you feel comfortable in any sort of space that you find that is maybe liminal, I don't know if we should call it liminal, because I consider liminal more transitional, you start to find that comfort anywhere that you are. And I've always been a person that I don't mind crying in public. And with every single person that I've dated, they were always like, why are you crying in public? And I get very emotional, I'm very sensitive and impulsive, and I feel like, oh my god, what the fuck, let me cry, why don't you cry, you know? That space, it's been different spaces throughout different times, my only hangouts when I was in high school and I was moderately going out were in the Palace of Youth, actually, in the Plateau, in different internet cafes. I would go play with my real-life friends. I would go play video games with them in a private space, so to say. In the Palace of Youth with my friends, we would just go and explore the ruined spaces all of the time. And the Palace of Youth is really big. And there are so many, not abandoned, there is just destroyed, but so many of those places are so interesting and scary at the same time. And we would just go in and go there and there, and there used to be huge holes in the floor that if you fell into them, you would just fall down and die. <laughs> but we found it so, oh, it's so cool, you know? And then in the internet cafes, we would play and there was a lot of guys and the guys were always bullying you or they were just trying to hit on you or it was just straight up bullied. It was a weird social environment to be in, but I guess you learn from everything. <laughs> but now I also hang out a lot in public spaces, so to say, like our go-to spot in the summer with my friends is usually the National Library. And we just hang out in the stairs of the National Library, not in the front, but in the back. 
we don't usually go to parks because we're like spoiled and stuff. We're like, oh, oh my God, we're centric kids, you know, <laughs> we have to accept that. I think in a way with Thermokis also, even though it's a public space, because you sometimes create connections with those people, it also becomes very private to you. So the space of Thermokis is pretty big. And you could just be in a corner talking to someone about something very personal or intimate and someone else will be in another corner doing something else and someone else. A lot of times when you have to do those personal talks, we don't understand that sometimes people just need to talk to one person about something important. And a lot of times, even me, I've just interrupted people because we think it's like, you know, we're all here together. We should do everything together, Lola. And it gets so annoying. Sometimes I just try to take two days off of not going there if I need my own time. I've heard a lot of different stories, as everyone does in their life, but also I've never really been a person who tells a lot of stories. I usually just talk about things that I've heard of people saying, of the ways that they think, or of tiny things people that I'm close to do. Some stories that I've always kept in mind were stories which were repeated. They were either very traumatic for a person or either they were very funny at times. And usually for me it's always been family stories, which were the ones that were repeated. Or it has been stories from um, close friends and everything like this. Most of the stories that my parents have told me were about their lives during the war. In Pristina it was kind of easier because it wasn't as difficult as in cities like Peya and everything. Even though it was very traumatizing, it was a bit less traumatizing, you know, a bit easier to live around. Usually the stories that they tell me about their pasts or that my mom always talks about how my dad used to be this guy that was very tough and he was beating people up and this and that and then they had like this relationship that was very rocky and then they would break up and make up but when they were broken up my mom couldn't talk to any other boy because my dad would be like oh very mad at him and like they were very scared of my dad and everything and then there were cases where my mom would, for example, get harassed walking through the streets and she'd go to my dad and my uncles and everything. And they'd just be like, okay, you walk in front and whoever looks at you are gonna beat them up. And they would actually do it. And I find it so interesting how that was a point of life. They would always tell me about the ways of how difficult it was to get to schools. Because at one point... You couldn't get educated in Albanian anymore, and it was only in Serbian. You couldn't also go to school as an Albanian. So they established this parallel schooling system, which was in people's residential homes. I think both my mom and dad, they were at the Hertica school, which is in kind of close to Vranjavs. And it's very far away from the center, and it's also very up. So they would walk that road all the time but the way they describe it sometimes seems so exaggerated you know like those very shitty memes that people put ah oh, when we went to school you know 
but lately I've been thinking like it definitely was difficult to get there and everything. Stories that are usually personal to me are stories that I've had with stray dogs. I've had a lot of different situations with stray dogs. There was this dog about two years ago, and it was around the time that I was still going on dates with my boyfriend and stuff. We were on that part of life. I was in this apartment, and there was this dog in the back of our building. And there's this like parking lot, there's this library, these tiny green areas where some stray dogs stay and stuff. And there was this dog which I knew since he was a puppy, so about one year maybe. And we were good friends, so to say. At one point I didn't see him for like a week and then I saw that he was very, very skinny. I decided that, you know, every time I go out I'm gonna take some food and give it to him. And I would always find him. And then I go out that night before meeting up with my boyfriend and then he's late, very late to come, but I go out and I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna take this time to hang out with the dog and everything, so I go, and the dog is staying in front of this burger shop, and he's like breathing like, <sighs> you know, and he's like very much in pain, and I see him, it's very late at night, and it's a Sunday, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the dog. He's not eating, he's not drinking water, he's not walking, like nothing is really happening. I was home alone. So my boyfriend came after a while and we were trying to figure out what was going on. And then we just thought, you know what, the dog might die. So maybe I can take it home, leave him in the balcony because I have another dog inside. And Mino, my dog, he's not uh, castrated or sterilized, so he just tries to hump every dog that he sees. He doesn't care what's going on, he just tries. So it was very problematic. I also had to lock Mino in a bathroom so he wasn't bothering the other dog. And then we kept the dog until the morning. At one point he came inside and he was like sleeping a bit on the floor and it was a very... such an emotional moment for me actually because I was hoping that the dog will survive, but he didn't. And at the same time, I called like a lot of veterinarians and at the time I had no money whatsoever. And I was just telling them, you know, can I just bring him? I will find transportation, everything. Can I just bring him and I will pay later because the dog is very sick. I'm sure he's poisoned, something is not right. And most of them were telling me like, Hey, you know, no, my boss doesn't let me. You can't really pay it later because it was also like 1 or 2 a.m. And the veterinarian that I always go to, none of them were in Pristina, so it was also very difficult. We wait until the morning. At 9, we go to these vets that I always take Pino to. And they were really trying to save the dog, but he died there in the thing. What's the name? Table. And it was so sad. I just repressed everything and then we went to bury the dog in Sofalia, which is like close to Gurmia and Gurmia is this park. And we went to bury the dog and it was so sad and we were like digging and then I realized how difficult it is to open up a grave. 
and then we put the dog in and then covered it. And then my boyfriend, he was like, you know what, let's say some words for the dog. And he recited a tiny poem. But it was very interesting because in this story, there are so many other things that happened. Like one of my friends that drove us to the space, he liked this other friend that brought us the shovel and they went out once, it didn't work. And then there was this whole story on that. With me and my boyfriend, there was the story that while we were digging the grave for the dog, we saw two dogs fucking, and then we were like, wow, man, look, we're burying a dead animal, and there's a new animal being created. It was so bizarre. We came back to the center, and we were like, um, I guess let's just drink a coffee. And then we drank a coffee and talked about music for like half an hour, and then I came back home. And I cleaned the house because everyone was coming back from holidays. And then I was very, very sad because I repressed everything. It hit me like after three, four weeks. We went out in a park with some of my friends. Then I like started crying a lot and everything. So with the dogs is this thing that sometimes I have stories which are very sad and sometimes I have stories which are very nice, but most of them are actually very bittersweet. There was also this other dog that I used to take care of, which I think it was a Dalmatian, but someone was breeding them and this, this puppy didn't come out right, so they just left him in the streets. And he was so cute, he was very loving and he had this best friend. He just became bigger and bigger, and then at one point I see this post in this group that someone literally cut his penis off. And I texted the woman that found him and was supposedly sending him to take care of him. She wasn't really telling me what's going on. I texted her also a few other times, and she never really told me what's going on, so I just presumed that something bad happened or everything, but there's a lot of stray dogs. They just go missing. And it's really sad, but at the same time, it's something that you really learn from it in the context that you learn how to really love something or someone, but just try to not let it get to you too much. Because you also mentioned Manifesta being all about storytelling, and I've noticed that most of our storytelling is very straightforward. When we tell it to people who are from the outside of here. When in an official setting, I would say we rarely take the time to have actually personalized stories, to actually talk about how, you know, I woke up today, I saw this, I saw that, and I think it's very beautiful to also do that. I also hate the concept of being professional every time. Like, hey, you're working, so you have to be professional. You can't show any sort of emotion. the situation I don't know what it is like right now exactly but for the past few years it's always been that the municipality they get these veterinarian clinics so they commission them kind of for them to take stray dogs and neuture or sterilize them and they also have to vaccinate them against like rabies and this and that so they're healthy and the neutering and sterilizing is so that they don't increase in population so the reason that there are still stray dogs is because the vets that do the work, they don't do it properly. 
people say that happens most of the time is that they get like 50 to 100 euros per dog that they take and they do the processes on. But what also happens is that they take dogs from different neighborhoods and then after the process, they put them in other neighborhoods. So the dogs get very confused and most of the time they also don't do the job properly. They put an ear tag to dogs that are supposed to have gone through everything. We have a dog in my neighborhood. She's very small and she has an ear tag and she gave birth to a puppy. And then in Termokis, we have this dog called Bora, which means snow. She's really cute and she gave birth to like four puppies last year. And she also has the ear tag. So they constantly do this. And there is this organization called Foundation for Animal Rights or something. They literally have their office beneath my apartment. And I know the girl that is doing all of this she's a really nice person and they're trying to get the facts and show this to everyone and they've been trying for a while now but i don't think it's really working out yet but i know they're doing better and better but there's just a lot of stray dogs right now i think the municipalities is starting to gather the dogs to do everything because i've been seeing dogs with stitches hanging around in the center and everything, but they're not dogs of this neighborhood, and a lot of dogs that have been in the center, they're not in the center now. When I talked about how you learn a lot from dealing with stray dogs, that you learn how to really love them and really care for them, but try to not be very attached, it never works out. <laughs> like, it works out for a few months, and then you meet this dog that you really just connect with. And then something might happen to them and then you're just like, life sucks and this and that. And sometimes I also think like people just go through way more difficult stuff and they can handle it. So I can also handle the stuff with the dogs. So you mentioned Rili India and I was thinking I've never really had a connection with Rili India. You know in Rili India there were these raves being held. I didn't go because as I said in the beginning like I really never went out up until the first year and then it took some time to also be able to go out at night. I never really had the chance to go. I had the chance to go in this time with Manifesta and Habsira when they did it but I think it could have been way better. Not only, but I also went because we have free tickets as staff of Manifesta. So it was like, it was a 15 euro ticket, which is very expensive for here, I believe. But there are actually four spaces I'm pretty connected to. One of them is the Palace of Youth. And we talked about it is this idea of really just went there a lot as a kid. And I was exploring it and there was this desire to see abandoned spaces and this desire to do this and to do that and it really fulfilled it when you mentioned the kiss me at the palace of youth i don't know if you know but the palace of youth is the place that everyone went to to make out 
It's so cute also. Every one of my friends, they, we all have a story, at least one, when we went there with someone and really liked them. And there's this ice cream shop underneath in the shopping area called Elida. And you would always get ice cream there and like go up and like, mm, you know, and it is cute. <laughs> In front of it, there's Grand, and the reason why I feel so connected to Grand is because I really liked spaces that are kind of abandoned and really old. They have a lot of patterns, a lot of colors, they have carpets and this and that. I've always find them very interesting, and I think everyone does like this nostalgic feeling that they give you. And with Grand also, it's because... Um, in Kosovo, I don't know if it's still going on, but you have like three types of proms. So to say you have like the mini prom night, the semi prom night, and the prom night. So the mini prom night happens when you finish fifth grade, the semi prom night happens when you finish ninth grade, and the prom happens in the end of high school. They would sometimes take you for the mini and semi prom, you would have them at the Grand Hotel. And it was such an interesting experience. He would just have a bunch of kids in one of the concert halls or whatever. And they were uh, playing some popular, not even folkloric, some folk music and some talava and this and that. And you had some kids like, ah, going crazy. <laughs> and then you had the kids who thought it was cool to drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes. And they were going out and doing and stuff. There was this time that we also tried to go into Gran to explore it and everything. And I did it a few times with a few friends. And we would go at where the Manifesta Cafe is now. And it was so interesting because everything was just not ruined, but everything was scattered around. There is the Partisan Martyrs Cemetery Memorial. So that one is at the Velania Park. It's one of the places I'm actually very nostalgic for because one of my mother's aunts used to have a house in front of it and we would see it all the time. I would go there with my other aunt and we would just hang out and play something and sing. And the monument is like this and it has this big ball in the middle of it and it was made for... Um, Nesa, I don't think I'm going to get into the history of it because it's too much. But uh, it was very nostalgic for me because it always had this interesting energy that it gave off to me when I was a kid. And also the park where it is in is very big. But most of the park is used for graves or memorials. And then there's the memorial of our ex-president, Ibrahim Rugova, who everyone loves, and then there are memorials of KLA fighters, and then graves of this and of that. There's like five different areas with different personalities. The other space is the Brotherhood and Unity Square. It's the one where Ugo Rondinona in Manifesta, you know, the pink triangle monument. I really like it because I really think it just looks beautiful. When I started going out as like a kid, I would go there with people and just hang out and it still has this 
importance to me. I think my favorite things in Manifesta that I can think of right now are that one. And there's this intervention by Lawrence Abu Hamdam in Grand. And I really like that one also. But this one with Ugo Rondinona I find so interesting because people completely have different opinions on what they think of it. The way that it is described in the proposal by Rondinone is that he really just wanted to do this so people stop discussing about what they should do with the monument. And he wanted to do it in the context that you revel in the pure enjoyment of mass and color and this and that, and then we're still discussing about it shouldn't be like this. There were these talks about tearing the monument down because it's something from Yugoslavia, and we have this tendency to just not want, I don't know how to say it, not in the context of preserving our history, but in the context of preserving the past, which I think is also very important, because otherwise, how are you going to tell people? You know, it'll just be something that you say and it evaporates in the air without having anything material. And we've been having this issue for a while now because we don't have that much documented history, you know, and it's very difficult. So imagine if you just start tearing down every monument that was before modern Kosovo, so to say, and you just put up monuments of men with guns. I don't know, what are you trying to transmit to others? decided to do this newspaper with Thermokis because also newspapers don't exist in Kosovo for a while now. I don't know, I really don't know, they just don't publish newspapers. So we decided to do it with the research club and the research club is actually a club that was formed when Manifesta asked for Thermokis to help with the subculture research and it was a project-based club because also Thermokis usually works out with clubs. So you get a club and in the club there's a working group who works towards this or that and they set their goals and it can be project-based. It can be based that someone just wants to do something. So what happened was that the club started, it ended its thing and then it was kind of dead for a few months. And then there was this idea to revitalize it and this friend of ours she studied in Seta uh, Deca, which is a transdisciplinary art university in Zurich, and it's very famous. It's also really big. I've been there. It's gigantically big. Like, you go up, and then you go this way, and then you go down to some garages, and then you go down to a basement, and then you connect to where you were. It's insane. And they have, like, almost every single department of arts that you can imagine. There was this collaboration with Thermokis people from the research club and people from master degrees in the university. And I don't really know how it went with the funds and everything. I have no idea how they made it happen. We had these sessions, we called it Pristina Lab because it was this idea of exchanging knowledges and ideas with everyone. And we had these sessions with people concerning different stuff. I don't know, like public spaces or this or that. Pretty common topics, but pretty interesting topics. And then the students from Switzerland, they came in Thermokis for a while. And then that is where we started actually 
making, materializing the newspaper. So what happened was that we all wrote articles about anything that we wanted to related to any issue that we perceived. In the beginning, I was kind of discouraged. I was so confused because the people were always having some ideas, especially the ones in Pristina. They always had like these interesting ideas and I felt so, I don't know what to write about. And I procrastinated so much and it was so confusing. But again, my boyfriend, because we also do a lot of things together, he had this idea of postcards. And the idea was in the beginning to just send postcards to one another and keep it going throughout everywhere that those people live. And then it comes back to us again and we either exhibit it in Thermokis or we send it somewhere again. Then the idea evolved. We decided that, you know what, let's go out today and let's just see what sort of postcards we have. So we went out in the center of Pristina. Now we live in front of each other, kind of, in the same neighborhood. And we went to these bookstores. There are two main bookstores in the center, and they had the same postcards. And then we noticed that in the postcards, there are monuments missing. And the two main monuments missing were the Brotherhood and Unity Square and the Partisan Martyr Cemetery Center, the two that I've mentioned. It immediately made sense why they're missing. Because these postcards were commissioned in 2019 and it was just the same guy doing them. And all of the main postcards that you can find in these areas that are very populated by internationals, so to say, were only those. So you could only see the square, you could see these new monuments that people have built, you could see the government buildings and this and that and this and that. But you couldn't see these older monuments, so to say. You had the Palace of Youth, you had Grand, but you didn't have these two. And it just makes sense that they are missing because they represent something very Yugoslavian, which is very idealistic of the time that it was built in, and people, they feel bad that they see it or anything they feel about it. So we decided to write about this in the newspapers. It was also, remember, when we were talking about how people sometimes they don't really they aren't direct about what they feel when it started about how I was talking about how I cry in public and everything. It was so much fun because it was one of the first times that I could really just write anything and I just wrote it like a story and it was storytelling. We also made our own postcards and they were satirical and we also made this poster. It's this image of a dog biting a tire of a car because the dogs here do that all the time. And it says something like, bite for climate. And then in the top it says, Pristina, stray dog, biting tires for climate change. So cute. So then we decided to finally materialize it and they brought us papers from Zurich and we bought a printer and we got a sewing machine in Thermokis and we're sewing them together. And the people from Switzerland, they were designing the whole thing and it was so nice. It was such a beautiful collaboration and we're still in the process of making more. There's a blog that we want to activate soon, but still it's a work in progress because it has everything, but it doesn't look so nice. And I also really like the name. It's called Potpuri and it's based on these CDs 
that usually would be released during New Year or anything. And it was called Potpuri with the stars or something. And it was this picture of a lot of popular folk singers like this and like this and just cut out and a lot of designs. It looks very kitsch. Now we also have regular meetings on what we want to do in the future and everything. But I'm really excited because it's a project that we want to actually try to do every six months and to give a platform for people to do some independent writing and try to also find a way to make Termokis a little bit more self-sustainable and everything, so it's really exciting. I don't know exactly the details. It's oral history being passed down through generation to generation. In 2016, there's this project called International Project by this organization in Belgium called Tustand. It's called International Project, and the main idea of the project is that you go into different cities and you try to build something that doesn't have to necessarily last for a long time, but as a statement, but it also acts as a way to show people that you can activate the communities and everything to do this or do that. And what happened was that in 2016 they decided to come here and they collaborated with a lot of locals and some other NGOs from different cities. I'm not very sure where they were from, but I'm pretty sure they were also from Macedonia, Albania. I think there was this NGO from Switzerland and I think some people from Ukraine also. They helped out in fixing the space that Termok is, is now in. The space they've just had the base didn't really have much more, so they fixed all of it. Not just the base. A lot of people were working in it physically, fixing it, and then they had this big fundraiser in the end, and they got a lot of money, and I think they had some issues in the beginning with the municipality really not letting them be there, but after a while, I don't know how exactly, I also like to think of the story as a myth sometimes, but now I'm realizing that it's important to actually know the details. <laughs> I know that Termokis changed the law of how NGOs can get public spaces in Pristina and in Kosovo, I think. But I don't know exactly what changed, but I know it changed something very relevant. So we're mythicizing the history of Termokis right now. <laughs> Then what happens is the organization, the project is like a domino effect. So then you get people from Pristina to go into a different city and try to do something similar. And then those people from that city, they do something similar. So this is also how the Uzina thing happened and how the Tova thing happened and everything else. This year we went to Brussels and last year people went to Sarajevo and next year we're going to go to Podgorica, which is in Montenegro. Termokis works as a public space, and it has this notion of it being a cultural and social space. Literally, anyone can come in there, it's open for everyone, and it's one of the main things that Termokis works on. It's accessibility and inclusivity. And this idea that you don't do events that you have to pay for, a ticket to go in. We don't do events with specific people, and you don't allow others to go in, unless they're people who have done a lot of 
problems or they're suspended from the space or something. And it's this idea of just creating the space for the people that need it. It's open for all and it just doesn't have a hierarchy. Everyone gets a say in decision making and it mainly works on the fact that we have weekly meetings every Wednesday at 6. And in those weekly meetings, whenever you want to do something that is big or it changes the course or you want to do something in the space, you come out to the people that are there and you tell them what you want to do and then everyone decides if it's good to do or if it's not good to do or they help you out or they tell you where you should fix this or fix that. You know, it's this idea of also being open and transparent and one of the main stuff of Thermokis is also that you have to be transparent in everything that you do. So all of the funds, all of the projects and everything, it can be public. So it's like this space where you just really try to create space for everyone. My involvement with Thermokis at the beginning, it was always, I was just joking, joking about the people that were there. And this is a very common thing for people here. Everyone in Thermokis is seen like as kind of hippies. You don't like shave your armpits or your legs. And they joke about this all the time. You see like memes on the internet of people dressed up in very colorful clothes. And they're like, oh my god, look at the Thermokis people going to save the stray dogs. (laughs) And sometimes it's very funny, but some of them are so lame. Also, we have a few dogs and they always joke about the fact that one of the dogs is named Goulash. This food thing. So cute, and she's also very fat. We had a dog named More, which means flea, because he had a lot of fleas when he was a puppy. They also make these memes. There's this meme of these people holding a dog up there, and then it says something like, flea going to get married or something. It's absurd, but it's so funny, actually. But I was one of those people that was only making the jokes. And then I would go sometimes when there was movie screenings or different workshops or concerts or something. And then I met this friend and she was always inviting me to Thermokis. So also what happens is that Thermokis has staff, but the staff has to change every two years. So that's one or two people or whoever it is, they don't become very attached to the space, that they try to control everything. It's like pre-measure to people not taking very controlling roles or being the big voice or this and that. This friend invited me to actually apply as a space organizer and I did it. In Thermokis there's the weirdest interviews, like it's a job interview but you're surrounded by like 20 people who look at you and they're asking you stuff and you have to answer and it's so stressful. After you complete the interviewing process you go out and the people who are not applying they vote everyone votes for who wants to I didn't get accepted as a space organizer which I'm very glad that I didn't actually and then I just started going more and more and more and more and it just became this thing that I go there now daily and I help out I don't know, it's such a challenging space to be in because you also have no boss whatsoever. So you have to learn by yourself how to just take action for everything and to understand that, you know, this is not going right. We can fix it. I can help to fix it. You also have to take care of the space. Like I always have to clean the bathrooms. With my boyfriend, we kind of separated. He cleans the toilets and I always clean the floor of the bathroom. It's very fun. Also with the dogs, 
you have to take care of them. There's been a lot of situations where we've had to take them to the vet. There's these issues because the space that Termok is in, dogs feel very territorial of it, and then they bark at random people. The people get very scared, or sometimes they get very aggressive, and you have to learn how to behave. And then there are the meetings where there are so many people and you have to know how to behave with everyone so that you don't hurt someone. Or you... It's such a challenging space to be. But it's really, really interesting because it teaches you about self-growth. And it really teaches you that sometimes you know when enough is enough for you all. So you have to know how to set your own boundaries. It's a space that really helps you out and it really gives you a lot of potential if you know where to look for that potential. It's I'm actually really happy that I'm a part of it now. People joke a lot about it, but most of the people that joke about it, they will always at one point in their lives end up in that space once. And they will either love it or hate it or just feel neutral about it. But most people, when they come there, they really find it so interesting. In my life, I've always wanted to do something with arts, but I never really did it properly. My parents were against it because my whole family, from my dad's side, almost all of them are artists, and they really didn't want me to go down that path. When I was a very small kid, I was always walking in my tiptoes for whatever reason, they decided, oh, let's take her out to ballet. She's already walking in her tiptoes, so she's probably a natural. And then I went to ballet ever since I was like five or six, up until I was 12. I was apparently very good for whatever reason, that's what they tell me. I was supposed to go to Albania at one point, I'm pretty sure some people were coming up to us and evaluating us as kids and seeing how good we're doing this and that and they wanted to take me to Albania but they couldn't get me because I was living only with my mother's aunt and she couldn't really do anything about it so it was impossible for me to go and then I became like 12, 13 and I got into that edgy phase you know when you hate everything and you're like oh my god I don't like this and you just hate everything and I started listening to some emo music, songs, everything like that. And it was so weird. I had this phase where I was obsessed with anime and this and that. And I just quit ballet at the time, which was one of the biggest mistakes that I regretted a lot up until a few years ago. I was so sad about it. And then I really wanted to go into painting or anything that has anything to do with that. But then again, it was not very possible to do that because my parents they were not discouraging me very directly they were just like yeah you're not gonna make any sort of money with art nothing will come out of it and this and that I guess they just really didn't want me to go down the artist path Then I also wanted to go to study music. I got so obsessed with having an instrument 
I wanted to have a drum set at first because I found it so amazing how you can just like <laughs> but we had no space for a drum set even my dad actually I don't know if he did it purposefully but we were living in the other apartment I mentioned in the beginning and I was really begging them literally every day for a drum set I really was begging them and in my kids mind I also found the space where we could use to put the drum set, which was this basement, which is tiny, and it wasn't enough space for it. But my dad, I think, to also shut me up. He told me, you know what, Era? If you do, like, for 365 days, you do one good thing every day, after a year, I will take you to a course. I took it so seriously. It was also to do the things in the house and everything, because even as a kid, I was always trying to not do anything. I was pretty lazy. I took it so seriously and I made this letter where I put like pluses for whatever reason and then I didn't even know how to count it properly, I just counted like 365 pluses and I wrote drums in front of it with two hearts and then every day when my dad said, okay remove a plus, I would go and remove one like and I was counting how many I removed. After a while I think I just got very demotivated and I loved that. I was spending also a lot of time with my aunt and I made her buy me a bass guitar and she bought it for me and I remember I was so excited in the beginning. I learned the song the first day and everything but then I was also very insecure about it and they wouldn't take me to any sort of course and stuff so I just quit it but now I've realized that I just don't really like it that much, I don't like bass guitar that much. Like a year ago, I also bought an electric guitar for whatever reason. And then I've realized that the music I like making the most is the music that you make with tiny instruments like toys and stuff. That you just create something random and you don't go professionally into it. I feel threatened that sometimes you feel like you can be very just and I also have a lot of friends who play music and they're very good at it and I've had so many instances where I also could have gone up with them not on stage but like just to play a random instrument but I always freaked out <laughs> and I never went in but I think soon enough I will also open up on that regard but I think it's fine it also connects to what you were talking about about art being very more interconnected after the pandemic. I mean, how I'm connecting it is that there is this band called The Residence and with a very dear friend of mine. We like really love them. I learned them because of him. And we really love them because they also create this mythology. They just lie about everything, about their history. They're like these guys. You only know one or two of them and they always change and they have these masks which are eyeballs and they make variations of pop songs and stuff and then they make songs which are like one minute but if you listen to them three times they become a full song. They have so many albums and they have a movie and this and that. It's insane how many things they did and I love it so much because also most of them are just trained musicians, but they've decided to make music that sometimes doesn't very sound very pleasing to the ears. And also they have this thing where they completely radicalize the point of marketing in music because they make so much money. They made actually so much money out of the marketing that they did of their own franchise and they made a lot of franchises. 
if I'm not wrong, they also have this slogan called Buy or Die. They just completely went out of it. They still make music. And also one of my favorite artists, and I always bore people with this, but one of my favorite artists of all times, it's always Brian Eno. In the context that I just love him so much, and there are so many songs of him that when I listen to them, I just cry. Because it's so difficult for songs especially, I think, to always hit you the same way. And that's how you know that you really love what that person is doing with their skills, so to say. And also, Daniel Johnston, the outsider music stuff and everything, I find it so beautiful. And he was such a sweet person. He had his love and everything, but he just couldn't find a way to get to her. And it's so sad at the same time. And I've always wanted to tattoo. It sounds so cliche, and I know that it is. The hi, how are you, frog, snail thingy. Do you know what it looks like? It's so cute. There's this album by Daniel Johnston called Hi, How Are You? And it has this drawing that he did by himself of this snail that also looks like a frog. The residents, for example, they've created this myth. You know when a movie is a cult classic? They're like that. They've spent a lot of time in creating that myth and maybe not even thinking about it, but just doing it. You also talked about the simple question of, like, what are your favorite artists? And I really don't know. I know that one of my favorite writers is Samuel Beckett because I also love the absurd it takes me to places that nothing else really takes me and the meaning that you're not in these boxes that you see the story and you're focused on that and it doesn't mean anything else but this one is so open-ended his stories are so open-ended that you can connect them to anything and also his poems are so beautiful Milan Kundera this Czech writer I love him so much but also I haven't been reading him for a while now because I feel like his stories are always the same pace. It's like a codex and you study this in anthropology. It's Kanuni Lake Dugazine. Diego Dugazzini used to be this prince way back in uh, Albanian places and stuff. There are like three or four explanations to how these laws were collected. They are very misogynistic, very sexist. Nice, I'm not going to talk about the misogynistic stuff. We also have this thing of oral history. And there are some parts in the book that are really important in the context of hospitability. You have so many rules of how you have to accept a guest to your home. They even eat before you and they do this and they do that and they can sleep at your place if they need it. If they're in a feud with someone and they come and stay at the friend, which is Miko in Albanian, the person that is trying to kill them, they can't kill them because if they kill them, they also get into a conflict with the people that are protecting the person. Also in uh, places where you've had to live as a collective, it always carries on the idea of being hospitable. 
has always been transmitted from generation to generation. You can learn to take care of other people and you've learned that you have to respect those people. I think as Albanians, it's a bit exaggerated sometimes. Is a part of our lives that you really take care of people who come as guests to you a lot, but also I think it's exaggerated at times because you don't really like someone, but just because they're a foreigner, you'll be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. and I tend to not do that. I really hate doing that. But I know friends of mine who just invite sometimes people just because they're not Albanian and stuff and this and that. And I find it so weird sometimes because things are changing. You don't have to do it for everyone. But I also think it's really nice because one of the reasons why I love Pristina and Kosovo so much is because you can feel at home anywhere. People always, at one point or another, take care of you. If you need help, you will get it. And you just have to look out for it. And if you're crying, if you're feeling bad or anything, it's really difficult for someone to not come up to you and be like, Hey, how are you? Like the album title. <laughs> I find it so nice. And also I think that comes from the fact that we've always lived as collective, as communities. We've lived in very big houses. And you've also had to sacrifice a lot always for your people. You've also just learned how to coexist with other people. Even though I remember how in the beginning I was talking about personal space and everything. I also remember when I was going to my grandma's house, I was literally sleeping in one bed with my uncles, with my dad, with my cousin, and sometimes my aunt. It's a reality that most of us have loved. You just sleep like sardines in a tiny bed and you love it. You know, it feels so nice because you always feel protected. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel. Conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Caesar. Music, S. McAvoy. Research team, Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication, Anna Franke. Technical Support, Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright, Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.